I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or a permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. My guest today is Dr. Susan Nelson. Dr. Nelson is board certified in internal medicine, geriatrics, and hospice and palliative medicine. She presently serves as medical director of senior services for Franciscan missionaries of Our Lady Health System and Franciscan Pace in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dr. Nelson holds numerous professional positions to champion the movement for providing quality end-of-life care for chronically ill patients living at home, in assisted living, and in long-term care facilities. Her work in this area has been far-reaching. One example is the position she took after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita as chair of the End-of-Life Task Force for the Louisiana Healthcare Redesign Collaborative. Results from that task force led to the statewide Coalition for Improved End-of-Life Care, and the Louisiana Physician Orders for Scope of Treatment. Locally, regionally, and nationally, Dr. Nelson has been instrumental in her work in end-of-life care. Here today to discuss with us her passion for changing the way the chronically ill live and die is Dr. Susan Nelson. Welcome. Thank you. You are a real pioneer for geriatric hospice and palliative medicine. What do you see as the key components to having an end-of-life conversation? Well, I think the biggest thing is to really ask the patient and their family that they, well, the people that they consider their family, um, what they want and how they want to spend their days. Um, And so it's really just asking a few simple questions to them so that you can understand where they're going or if they've even thought about it. For instance, if you have conversations with the 80-year-old daughters of 100-year-old people, sometimes they've never, ever even thought that their family member or their mother or father would die. It's, it's, just, never, it's just never a thought. They've been around for 100 years. Why wouldn't they be around for tomorrow? How do you balance your medical opinion about what's going on with the patient and the, the needs of the family, the wishes of the family? Well, I mean, sometimes it's really just getting them to look at what the patient's function is so that, you know, the the thought of them dying may have not ever crossed their mind, but they realize that, oh, yeah, mom hasn't walked in a couple of years, and now she's really not able to, you know, get up to go, you know, to the bathtub you know, and that she has to be, you know, bathed in bed. Um, and, and sort of they realize then that there's been a gradual decrease in function that they can sort of accept that uh, things aren't getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes people are just really unaware of, of that being a marker of how well or how badly we're doing. I mean, completely separate from somebody who has a... A disability, a lifelong disability, um, uh, which then is a whole different topic of conversation. But um, someone who has acquired disability 
And and then the word frailty doesn't really come up much in in our uh, world. You know, frailty is really defined as to be less and less until you are no more. Uh, if you look in the Webster Dictionary, and so you know, trying to have families understand that um, as you do get older, we have less and less abilities to to do things and to cope with things. Um, and so it's sometimes it's that's the easiest way to to discuss it. Uh, sometimes people just have no desire to talk about it at all or, or even realize it. We'll leave the room, um, you know, sort of storm out, uh, things like that. So, what, what kind of training do physicians get about these conversations, how to have them? Well, you know, not much. Um, and, and it's really sad. So, um, you know, I, I finished medical school a long time ago uh, in the 80s. And I had several good teachers, um, and but it wasn't anything formal. And so now we're really trying to formalize having difficult conversations. And difficult conversations may be the way surgeons approach talking to the family about, you know, that you do or don't need a particular operation as much as about end-of-life conversations. But, you know, it's probably a third of the medical schools actually have formal training Mm -hmm. in that. Um, And so we're trying to change that. Um, I'd really love to see the training happen in all allied health professionals because sometimes, uh, or most of the time, in fact, the nurses in the hospital uh, seem to know the patient and family interaction uh, better and can gauge what's going on in the room better than the physician who, you know, drops in and out once or twice a day uh, where the nurse is in, uh, in more often. So um, having a whole group of people just learn how to have conversations. What kind of support is there for physician, nurses, mental health professionals after they're having these kinds of conversations? Because I imagine... There are many dynamics at play, and all sorts of things can unfold that are powerful. Yes. So, you know, sometimes the biggest detriment is the um, physician not really thinking that the conversation may be appropriate, um, but yet the patient has expressed to someone else that's come in the room that, you know, I'm really tired or I don't think this is all worth it. And to be able to understand that those are words that need more exploring. Because the easiest thing to do is to go, okay, fine, and leave the room. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so some of it is really having permission from the the physician to be able to to have those conversations and then report back to the physician that the patient may be ready to hear something different. Um, I don't know. So so permission from the physician for, like, somebody else on the team to be able to kind of open this door? Yes, yes. Where do you feel like the role of the mental health professional could be improved in the hospital room? Boy, I think all of us need more mental health professional assistance. Um, but, but really getting to understand what people's feelings are. Um, their sometimes their anxiety, their sleep disorder is really things that they've never said to anybody. And uh, having someone who is a non-judgmental to really interact with them to figure out 
whether it's a symptom that needs to be treated with medicine or it just needs to be, you know, aired out. Um, there's a, a woman, her name is Deborah Grassman, that is a nurse practitioner in the VA system in Florida. And she has um, written and talked a lot about peace at last. In fact, um, she that's what she usually talks about, which is veterans as they're dying will be the first time they've ever told anybody about what happened hmm. uh, to them. And, and um, you know, I, th- I think that we need to get people's stories out of them better than we do now. And I think that mental health professionals could really help all of us um, be comfortable with going down that path. And are are there some settings that you're familiar with that, that are better at maybe having more of a team approach at end of life? And if so, what are those settings? Because <laughs> it sounds like that's what help, would be helpful is both from a supportive standpoint, but also just from a data standpoint of what's going on day in and day out with the patient. So one of the, you know, and... and in the world of doctoring, you know, there's procedures that people do. So gastroenterologists do scoping and surgeons operate. So hospice and palliative medicine physicians and geriatricians have our procedure is the family meeting. And it really is to get the people on the team together with the people on the team caring for the patient, so the the family unit, together and just, you know, go over what's important, what's going on, and a realistic uh, view of what can be done and what should be done and what the recommendations are. I think too many times we've, we've gone the other direction. We used to be a very paternalistic medical community where the doctor said, you will do this, and that's what people did, to we swung the other way with, you know, patients arriving with you know, a whole ream of paper that they got from the internet on what, you know, what should happen to them. And so I think we need to come back to the middle where patients explain what it is that they want, perhaps, and then we, the health professionals, um, guide them in what's possible. You must find that death is, is so deeply personal, unlike maybe some other things that physicians deal with. Death just brings up all sorts of things into the into the room. <laughs> well, it it does and you know, you you think about families that didn't get along when everybody was well um, and they now don't get along when they have something to focus their anger on or for instance if mom is not able to really communicate any longer then old rivalries come up and they manifest themselves as one child wanting to do this sort of treatment and another child wanting to do that sort of treatment because that's what would bring them the most peace. And and so that's why it's so important for families to have conversations about what's important and or talking to the person that you want to make decisions. So sometimes people assume that their oldest son will be the one who will make decisions, and yet the youngest daughter is the one who really is the one who can 
uh, follow through on mom's wishes, you know, no matter what they are. But, you know, no one would have thought that the youngest daughter would be the person picked. And then there's this big fight over that. Uh, so, you know, it's really just being an open, open family conversation about that. How would you define death with dignity? Uh, death with dignity has lots of connotations these days. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's when the patient is where they want to be, with whom they want to be, um, and that the symptoms are managed. And I think it's as simple as that. As a, the physician, do you feel a sense like when all those things are in place, I imagine that must feel different than when all those things are not in place. Right. It, it is. It's really, um, it's really uh, magical is probably not the right word to say, but it's just so relieving to see that happen, to, to have everyone around the patient's uh, bed and to have them take their last breath and everybody just have a sigh of relief. Tell me about your role in the Louisiana Healthcare Redesign Collaborative and where things are with this work today. Well, so that was um, a collaborative that was enacted by the, the state legislature after Katrina, and it was to really redesign health care in Louisiana as a model for the rest of the country. And so there was a group of about 40 stakeholders that met. It seemed like every night of the week, but it wasn't. Uh, and we met in New Orleans and divided uh, into different work groups. And one of those work groups was the end-of-life work group, which is what I chaired. And it was really to look at how we can make the last two years of life, if we could predict that, better for people. So we looked at um, whether there was some way that we could redefine healthcare benefits so that people could retain their insurance for the year or two that they would have to step away from the workforce. Um, the other thing we looked at was that the literature really shows that Louisiana is um, high in the cost of last year of life uh, costs under the Medicare system. And a lot of that was because of discontinuity of care, um, meaning that people uh, went a lot of places. They were in the hospital, and then they went to rehab, or they went to a long-term acute care hospital, and then they went to a skilled nursing facility. And then they maybe went home, and then they bounced back to the hospital. And really, that was discoordinated care. And a lot of it had to do with um, really not having a plan of care. So the the one thing that came out of our group, uh, to make a long story short, uh, was the LaPoste document, which is the Louisiana Physician Order for Scope of Treatment, which is an easily identifiable document that really translates a patient's goals of care and treatment wishes into physician's orders, and then they go with them across healthcare settings so that someone... Um, there's really three three questions that get answered on the document, which is what kind of level of care do they want, uh, which is full treatment, intensive care unit. Um, the second is limited um, intervention or selective treatments, meaning that you would want to go to the hospital and have a few things done, but ask me questions about those things. And then the uh, third option is comfort-focused care. 
Um, and, and along with that was whether or not you would want to have CPR attempted on you. And then the last question had to do with uh, artificial hydration and nutrition, for which there's a lot of controversy. I'm curious about the, the last one. You said there's a lot of controversy about it. If you could speak some to that. Sure. So, you know, a lot of people um, are concerned that people, as they're dying, aren't eating. And that's actually part of the dying process, mm-hmm. is that people stop eating or drinking. And, um, and so we we do have the ability to put in intravenous lines, IVs, and um, uh, nutrition through the vein, and we also have the ability to put in feeding tubes into people. And you know, the those sorts of things were really invented as temporary solutions to a temporary problem, and not necessarily a permanent solution to a permanent problem. And so that in many people who um, are dying, adding uh, tube feeding to them um, can um, actually cause more complications, and still the patient is dying at the end, you know, at the end of the time frame. So, um, you know, the most controversy has been over patients in persistent vegetative state, which is really a tiny, tiny part of the population who who have an illness which uh, for which a feeding tube may have been placed. You've been involved with the Louisiana Conference of Catholic Bishops. Have you found a disconnect between the doctrines of the Catholic Church and some of the decisions that need to be made at end-of-life care? Actually, no. Um, the ethical and religious directives of the Catholic Church um, really talk about the burden and benefit of treatments. And um, and so uh, the ca- the conference has been very supportive of the La Post document. The Catholic bishops uh, in Louisiana have actually written a document called the Final Journey, uh, which is available on if you Google it, um, which is available and it's a guide for uh, those of the Catholic faith to to take this journey towards end of life and. Uh, some of the appropriate scriptures that go along with with that and explain the uh, ethical and religious directives that the Catholic um, um, parishioners as well as Catholic health institutions follow. What role do you see people's faith having in the kinds of decisions that they and their families might be making or and in terms of, like, what guidance they're looking for from you, too, how do those things come together? Well, there are um, many people who are looking for a miracle. Um, and so those folks, I think we have to guide them. I think as a physician, we have to guide them into um, what their definition of a miracle is, and really sort of listening to what it is that they're hoping for, and really get that out on on the table. But I think, uh, certainly in Louisiana, um, religion and spirituality has a big, uh, is a big factor in the family unit, in how they manage things, and how they um, come to understand how you're they're supposed to act or uh, how they're supposed to decide um, it 
it, it's been an interesting um, sort of understanding of my part to see how uh, similar people who have a similar faith tradition have completely different ideas about what that means. And I guess that is what makes each of us different and mm-hmm. how we interpret the world around us. Where is the field of palliative and hospice medicine going in the next 10 years? Unfortunately, it's booming. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're not going to be out of business. I'm not going to be out of business. In fact, there's not enough uh, folks that are trained in in palliative medicine to go around. Um, I I think that we've gone from a real, um, we can fix a lot of things in our healthcare system. And and people expect that things be fixed, but when they can't be fixed, they really do want someone to tell them how they're going to relieve their symptoms. And so palliative medicine really is to look at the whole picture and maybe explain some of the things that are going on with the other doctors, but to travel along with the patient and their family and the other physicians to... Um, really help them make the best decisions for for the patient um, that they can. That's one of the things that palliative medicine does is really sort of get to the heart of what the symptoms are and, and that need to be treated and really get everybody else that's watching to understand what it is that's important to the person as opposed to what they think is the most important thing. You know, people talk about Um, quality of life versus quantity of life. And so people would rather live, you know, three really great weeks than three awful months, you know, where they didn't get to do things. And, you know, it's hard to decide in the moment. And it's hard to decide to see that as a spectator. Um, But, you know, the patient can usually tell you what what it is that, that they want and whether they would want one versus the other. What are characteristics about you as a physician that you feel like are are helpful in bringing to the table? In a from a non medical standpoint, you're clearly like very well credentialed in what you do. You know, I think it's just the ability to listen and uh, to take some cues from from the patient and the family about uh, things that are going on. Um, I mean, I th- I think that's part of. Um, internal medicine, um, uh, where we were trained to really look at all the clues that were going on and come up with a solution for the patient. And and in this situation, um, palliative medicine is really looking at all the clues and coming up with a solution for the patient, but it may not be curative. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a difference, and that difference makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, but But just being able to listen and sort of put two and two together and get four instead of eight <laughs> is really, you know, is really helpful. Um, being empathetic without being sympathetic, um, you know, to try and understand what they're doing without feeling sorry for them. Although, you know, I, I get, I'm sad. I cry with patients um, and their families. And, um, you know, so it, it's, it's, a, it's tough to do that, you know, all the time. Um, but what do you want to continue to pursue in your professional career? You know, I would like to see um, 
more people be comfortable with palliative medicine skills, more doctors be comfortable with conversations and palliative medicine skills. So I'd really like to see medical schools really um, begin or improve their training of young students, which then rubs off on their faculty members, um, on how to do it better and to be more clued in to what it is that the patient wants. Um, and then to, to really s uh, see some of the laws that we have in Louisiana sort of fixed because some of them are in conflict. You must feel very driven and passionate to get involved at a legislative level and not... Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, you know, there's some really funny laws that are out there. <laughs> I mean, for instance, I, I don't know why this is, but our advanced directive statutes um, direct that our living wills are kept by the Secretary of State instead of with the Department of Health or some other organization. And so the Secretary of State's website has that information and we don't really have a red we have a registry but it's it's not very um, robust as you could do uh, now and so you know just trying to get different departments to you know to get together on uh, how to do things you know you think of the Department of Motor Vehicles has a great registry I mean we all have driver's licenses or we hope we do um, <laughs> and uh, the the um, organ donation uh, is on that, and so that that doesn't link directly. And they always ask you if you have an advanced directive, and yes or no. But it doesn't go anywhere, and so really having it go somewhere would be an ideal thing that I would like to do. <laughs> that sounds quite pragmatic. Yeah. <laughs> do you have personal experience that drove you to be as passionate and as involved as you are in this field? Well, you know, I, I early in my career. I mean, I was a third-year medical student when the first patient with AIDS was in Houston, and we sort of didn't know what to do for those folks, And but they were dying. And to be able, as a medical student, you, you know, you sort of were the, the least, um, we were the least costly person on the team for sure. Um, and, and sitting with people who were young and who were dying um, was um, something you had to experience and not, you know, and there wasn't really any book education about that. Um, and then my father died young of uh, prostate cancer and was really now looking back was not provided um, as much pain medicine as he certainly needed. Um, he had disease in his bones and really couldn't move without uh, almost, you know, um, uh, writhing in pain and, and looking back at that very early in my career um, uh, was something that needed to be fixed. You know, I think making house calls is a, is just, a, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words and to understand what the family's going through. Um, took care of a young man who was on really high-dose um, opioids, um, narcotics for his pain, really young guy, and he had a bowel obstruction, so things that he took in to eat um, couldn't go anywhere, and so, you know, early he had vomiting all the time, whatever he ate, but he wanted to eat, um, and so we um, had uh, something 
put in a feed, sort of a reverse feeding tube. So he would eat a sandwich uh, and grape knee high. And then, um, and then he would let it come out this tube instead of actually vomiting. And that, and you know, that seems so strange. You know, it was just he wanted to eat and mm-hmm. he wanted to be a normal kid. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so you know, doing that so that he could do that without having to you know to vomit was mm-hmm. was just something that you know literally made his day. Um, and. Uh, you know, he he was dying of what he was dying from, but he had some really good days, weeks, months, actually, uh, after that all happened. So, you know, just just sort of seeing what what's you know what's really important to people and along the way. What would be your advice to people about how to prepare for end of life? Well, my father, who who died young of a, uh, you know, said not everybody's lucky enough to drop dead mowing the lawn. <laughs> so, so um, you know, short of that, so only ten percent of us do that have some rapid exit like that, and the other ninety percent of us have, you know, hours, days, weeks, months, years, and so it's it's really making sure that. Um, your family knows what's important um, to you, uh, really where you want to be, who you want to be with, you know, and what you want to do when you get there uh, is really an important thing. And making sure that you thank the people that need to be thanked and tell the people that you forgive them and that you love them. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not too much to do that every day or every week because uh, you don't ever know if that's going to be yours or their last uh, time to see you. So I think, you know, that's a, a preparation that we should all make. My son, who's now 25, um, when he was in high school, you know, he'd hear me on the other end of the phone talking to families about something going on. And so when he had uh, one of his friend's grandfathers, who they had all been close to, died you know, instead of, I think, instead of the usual response of, oh, that's so, you know, that's so bad or whatever you're supposed to say, he said, well, do they have a good death? And then <laughs> because because when I would talk to one of the hospice nurses, you know, my question, did they have a good death? Were they there? Were they where they wanted to be? Were their symptoms controlled? And were the people that needed to be there there? And so he'd always heard me say that, and so he thought that's what you know you were supposed to say, <laughs> and and uh, and he had to, he quickly backtracked. But then you know it was funny because some of the other people said, well, you know, gosh, you know that was pretty smart of what you know what he said. But you know I think he was a little taken aback that his conversation wasn't normal for for somebody who was you know sixteen. <laughs> so wise. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Susan Nelson. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Elfant, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. 
Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you could take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.